Jazz Heads Radio, brought to you in conjunction with Wakefield Jazz, a lovely little jazz club in Yorkshire. Hello, welcome to Jazz Heads episode 34. Today I'm chatting with Pete Rosser, a piano player, accordion player, composer, rhubarb advocate, and most importantly, the person responsible for the amazing range of artists we have visiting Wakefield Jazz every week. Coming up, we've got tracks from Fats Waller, Thelonious Monk, Lester Bowie, Asta Piazzolla, and Mary Halverson. And in the background, you can hear JF by Rosario Giuliani. I'll add a full track listing to the description, as well as links to Pete and Wakefield Jazz. Come and visit us at the club soon. We're there every Friday, and I hope you enjoy listening to the podcast today.
Hi, Pete. Hello, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is an unexpected pleasure, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. <laughs> Drinking tea on a Friday afternoon, know, that's the best just thing. In the, in the corner While everyone else is working and preparing for the gig. Yeah. You know, beavering away in the corner over there. It's going well at the moment, isn't it? It's been good the last three weeks, particularly, have been a definite uplift in crowds. Yeah. That's what I think. Which, whether that's returning to normal, who knows? But it's been very satisfying. Fingers crossed. Not to um, fret so much. Do you want to mention Rhubarb Fest? <laughs> <laughs> Good time. Let's, let's talk about rhubarb fest. Twenty fifth of February. Yeah. Friday the twenty fifth of February. So that's Friday gig, as it is now in a couple of weeks' time. Um, it's the same weekend as the Wakefield Rhubarb Festival. So we have a special Wakefield Jazz Rhubarb gig on. And for the people who don't know, uh, Wakefield has the Rhubarb Festival because because the Rhubarb Triangle is based around Wakefield, and a triangle between Wakefield and Morley and Leeds. And it was the, the best place to grow rhubarb in the 19th century. And there was an enormous entry, industry in the 19th century. And there was a train that went, one train a night, just full of rhubarb, taking it down to London from Ardsley, the Ardsley Rhubarb Express. And, and it's something to do with the particular climate, because apparently rhubarb comes from Siberia originally. Yeah, right. But there's something to do with the frosty corner that is that little triangle of land. And then they discovered that if they put them into sheds and grew them in the dark and forced the rhubarb, but then it would grow particularly efficiently. Obviously, like everything else, it's declined somewhat, but there's still about ten farms, apparently, growing rhubarb in that area, Rothwell, Garforth, around there. I wrote some music a couple of years ago for the Rhubarb Festival, so I'm expanding the tunes I wrote from that. We've got a, I think it's, it's uh, a sextet, that's what yeah. it is, sextet, with um, saxophone, trombone, guitar, piano, bass and drums. Very nice. And it'll be definitely some world premiere stuff going on there. Good. That's for sure. And rhubarb-themed tunes, which everybody's interested in. <laughs> Apparently yeah, so. Yeah, we'll, yeah, it's a whole... We'll see what happens. I'm sure we'll have a raffle with Part of the unique selling point prizes. There will definitely be... And there'll be crumble. Oh, there'll be good. crumble. Good. Oh, we'll have to get crumble. But yeah, there'll be rhubarb in the raffle, I'm sure. How long have you been at the club, Pete? I have been... I moved to Wakefield five years ago from Stroud and um, came along to a gig and offered to get involved because I had played at Wakefield Jazz in something like 1987 or something as a obviously a very, very young boy. Um, I was a student in Sheffield and so we did have a gig with the band Big Sun featuring Dave Blackmore on the saxophone and Sean Randall on the drums and other people. So I did play here in about that, 1987-88. And um, so I knew about Wakefield Jazz, and I've been coming up and down to Wakefield over the last 20 years, saw Stan Tracy here, say, in about 2001, I think. And um, so I knew it was here, and so I thought I'd come and, you know, see what, see what I could offer as and part you, of getting, to, getting involved with Wakefield. And you never left. And yes, yes, obviously, <laughs> you know, things eventuated. So now I book the bands, basically, and I try not okay. to be sucked into too much else apart from booking the bands, because I have to earn a living as well. Etc. Etc. But as you know, as a musician myself, I know what it's like hustling for gigs, and I also know what it's like. And I feel guilty all the time because you get far more emails than I reply to. So that's a bad thing, obviously. Do you have a philosophy um, when you're booking musicians, or do you have? A it's a real mixture sort of because because I have a sense of what the audience might like. I know I have a sense of what I like and what my dream bands to book would be. But I've recently discovered, for instance, that one of my dream bands would cost about £50,000. <laughs> so that's not likely. I think my tastes are probably more adventurous or provocative than the audience is necessarily going to want. So it's, it's blending all the time. Mm. And then blending just over the years and thinking who's been here, who's been here 
every 12 months and who's not been here for five years and you know I'm not so aware of who's not been here for five years but sure. trying to think of who'll bring people in and then who I think is also interesting and then balancing it out with some things that I know are going to be popular. Have you got any particular highlights? Any favourites? Oh, that would be asking, wouldn't it? I mean, we've had Greg Abate a few times. I mean, yeah. partly I enjoy that because it's seat of the pants. Partly I enjoy that because yeah. I get to play in the trio and it's just like old school bebop saxophone with a pickup trio and it's really entertaining. And I think yeah, it was great. people like the spontaneity and the fact they like that sense, you know. Because often, you know, fear. often it's young jazz or contemporary jazz, you're you've written your own tunes you've got your own arrangements of your own tunes and that's what you want to present rather than playing Charlie Parker tunes whereas what Greg does is play Charlie Parker tunes and you know people love that I don't think jazz should be heritage that's the thing I don't think right. okay. I don't think that's jazz should be heritage I think it should be but I you know when you hear Greg Abate playing bebop it's not heritage it's not recreating something it's still playing it freshly yeah, you know, still I think jazz it? should be fresh Basically. I think it must be exciting for him. I was talking to him in his podcast about this mm. a little bit about sort of the, the joys of playing with different trios. And he does, does yeah, it and it's a particular trio. it's a it's a particular mindset, isn't yeah. it? That you'd want to do that at his yeah. age. You know, he's seventy or so at his age that he'd want to travel around Britain for six weeks, say, playing with thirty different trios. And some of them, I'm sure, are going to be better than others. Yeah, you know? well, that's the he was very, isn't it? He was very kind to us, yeah. so was, it was okay. I know we've got um, Rory Ingham on at the club next week, and mm. I was doing a bit of reading about Art Blakey this, this week, yeah. the Jazz Messengers, I think he said the Jazz Messengers had like 167 mm. people coming through its ranks over the, mm. over its sort of 35-year lifespan, yes. and, and the majority of them were young musicians. Absolutely, and that was Art Blakey's thing, wasn't it? Yeah. Was, you know, that he wanted, or as it went on, somehow he became older, but he wanted to carry on working with musicians yeah. who were 22. And he said it was something to do like the, yeah. the, just the new energy that, the, yeah. the, that new people And in that band. way that Clark Tracy does it now, yes. basically. Yeah, it's very, very you know, yeah. We had Clark the other week, and he had a couple of older musicians with him, which was yeah. a surprise, because mostly he works with musicians yeah. who are 22. It's great. That same it's vibe. really nice to see, and uh, mm. it's, it's great for the young musicians, it's great for the older musicians alike, I think, isn't yeah. Just, oh yeah, I saw Art Blakey. Um, I saw Art Blakey at the Lead Mill in 1985 oh, or brilliant. something. With I think it was Donald Harris and Terence Blanchard there. Right. Yeah. Maybe um, John Toussaint as well. Mm-hmm. And they were astonishing, but I couldn't couldn't follow it at the time at all. Couldn't follow it. Didn't know what was going on? It was amazing. <laughs> he knew it was but, good. You know, I, even yeah. though if he was playing four four swing, I still couldn't follow, yeah. follow it. It was just a, you know, another oh, world. It was intense. Yeah. 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 An eye opener. When did you um, start getting into jazz then, Pete? Oh. Well, Should we, that probably leads us on to first, our tracks, doesn't it? The first track yeah. I have chosen is Fats Waller doing Ain't Misbehaving. Yeah. Um, it's just like, you know, I think back, and obviously I, I played the piano when I was young, and I played classical piano and had proper lessons and learned to read the music properly and couldn't do anything if it wasn't written down and in front of me. So it took me years to kind of unlearn that and get to a point where I would say, yes, I am a, a jazz pianist because I was so aware that I couldn't do that. I could play Scott Joplin, say, and I could read the Scott Joplin and play it really well, but I couldn't then improvise with it. Mm. But, um, you know, then I had friends at school. I know I had a friend at school that we used to play in a really, really bad little school band that played, like, Streets of London and things like that. Yeah. And, um, and this lad who played the violin, his dad had Gil Evans records, I think, had all Miles Davis Gil Evans records, and... They used to occasionally play them to us when we ran and say, you must listen to this. And I had no idea what it was at all. No idea what was going on. And Did I like did. it? Um, I thought, this is interesting. I think I thought, this is interesting. There's obviously something important and valuable, but I don't know yeah, what. there's something why. in there. I don't know why. <laughs> I'll come back to this in later life. And then with my dad, my dad used to take 
I don't think it took, I think it was me, I don't think my brother came. He used to go across to this pub in Bilston in Wolverhampton called, it's called The Trumpet, it wasn't actually called The Trumpet, but everybody called it The Trumpet. And they had basically trad jazz seven nights a week. And there was a piano player called Reg Curl with a K. And then there was Tommy Burton's Sporting House Quartet or something like that. And it was proper old school stuff, traddy stuff, and then fat swallery stuff. And it was really entertaining. So I think that was maybe, that was certainly the first live jazz I saw. Certainly. And I right. think, yeah, yeah it was probably, even that was probably over my head. And then when I became a student, when I went to Sheffield to be a student in the 80s, I started just going to jazz gigs then. I mean, I, I was on a full grant. I was on a full grant and living in a hall of residence and there was theatre and dance and everything and it was, it was very cheap. So if you go to the Leadmill and watch the jazz or go to the Students' Union, mm-hmm. there was the Sheffield University Jazz and Blues Society. Great. I'm trying to think of a sort of dill caps. I definitely saw a band with dill caps, the bass player, okay. electric bass player. Yeah. And I remember they played Somewhere Over the Rainbow and I recognised the tune and then got had no idea what happened for the next 10 minutes and then they played the tune again you know I go to these gigs like going to the Art Blakey gig and I go to these gigs and think well something's going on they obviously know what they're doing so there's something to learn here yeah. and, and then I went to the jazz workshops at the Lead Mill on a Saturday morning with Colin Stansfield who came across from Manchester and then after Colin running it there was Richard Ingham father of Rory and Dom mm-hmm. and um, so I, I learned to play jazz from Richard Ingham partly and then just you know once once I'd learned that all you needed was to like learn the Dorian mode and that was it basically <laughs> play the white notes on the piano and then you'll be with the D and the bass and you're off and that was all there was to it but before that yeah I really liked Fats Waller and Brilliant. I you know yeah. I used to play in pubs in Sheffield I used to well in a pub in Sheffield but twice a week for a fiver hey. each time it's good money so that was it yeah. so you know yeah. and um that was the kind of thing I played, Fats Waller tunes and, and classics. classics. So yeah, Fats Waller was probably the first, the probably maybe even the first jazz record that I bought would have been yeah. a Fats Waller album. Brilliant. Thanks, Pete. So Ain't Misbehaving is the best song. Thank you. 
Okay, and then you've gone with a, a Thelonious Monk track for your second one. So there you go, that's moving on, isn't it? Yeah. So we're vaguely moving through through history here, chronologically, with mm-hmm. these tracks. So having um, explored a bit of jazz at the Jags Workshop in Sheffield and listened to more things. And, you know, I mean, you just pick up things accidentally. That's what I find. There's no method mm-hmm. to it. So also you go to workshops and generally you'll play some modal jazz, some kind of blue tunes and some miles tunes and then maybe move on to some standards and play all the things you are or tangerine, that's the sure. kind of thing I remember playing. Yeah. And um, obviously we're to- it's ancient, ancient times. So the way to research things was obviously just to go to the, the record library, so Sheffield City Record Library and mm-hmm. get records out and, and learn about them. Although there was you know, on a higher level, a higher level, a more abstract level entirely, there was the rare and racy record shop in Sheffield, which was where you. I think it took me a couple of years just to pluck up the courage to walk through the door. It was a second hand <laughs> bookshop that also sold improvised music records, basically. Right. And was and it called it was, Rare and Racy? It was called Rare and Racy. Great name. And it has gone now, yeah. which it was the best place. Mm. And it, you'd walk in and there'd be some, like, Anthony Braxton squalling away or something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very, very cool and intimidating looking people who clearly knew everything there was to know. They were probably just as scared as you were. Maybe they were. <laughs> oh, you know, but goodness me. But they had an amazing selection of records and then yeah. like world music, used to do and that kind of thing. Just the most obscure stuff. So how did I get into Monk then? I suppose what I believe, what I believe basically is that jazz is you know, there's that line about the sound of surprise. Jazz is the sound of surprise and I, I think jazz should be provocative. Mm. not comforting mm. so I, you know obviously I can appreciate that music can be beautiful but essentially I want it to provoke me a bit and spark me and make me sit up and think rather than make me settle back and think all's well with the world and isn't this lovely yeah. so I could you've, you've I could, freedom to do it I could jazz, go on about yeah. that for ages probably <laughs> probably but what I like about Monk is just the sparkiness and the angularity and it's got all of that in it hasn't it like I say you know I'm talking about way before YouTube existed. So it wasn't that, you know, you could watch Monk on YouTube now and see him playing six notes and then walking around the stage for the next ten minutes <laughs> in his way. But just listening to the way he played the piano on those records, genius of modern music on Blue Note, um, just, just that, you know... And the more you listen to Monk, the more, you know, you think, oh, right, he's kind of worked out this solo in 1948 and then he's played it for another 30 years. But, but it's just like no one else was playing like that. And it's... it's down to the bare essentials it's saying right I'll play this route and I'll play this seventh and then I might play this jump fourth and that's all you need to hear because that's basically what this <laughs> tune is about yeah. and I won't play it here I'll play it there and then I'll play it again you know it's just just amazing so he, he just plays he's got this amazing ability to place everything in exactly the right mm. place all the yeah. time hasn't he and yeah 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 and with so real deliberate determination absolutely yeah, yeah he never yeah. shies away conviction, from anything maybe yeah. conviction that's the thing yeah. isn't it Fabulous. so it's you couldn't you can't you know, you can't imagine being in a bar with Monk playing and chatting away over it, can you? Or having a cocktail. And <laughs> no. So this track, In Walked Bud. Great choice. Tra- uh, I suppose it's a tribute to Bud Powell, yeah. who was much more of a classic bebop player than Monk. But it's also based on um, Blue Skies. Mm-hmm. The tune Blue Skies, oh, yes, isn't it? Course. With a little descending yeah. bass line yeah. and then a different middle eight. Yeah. But it's a great, and this, this classic version from the Blue Note recordings is just a classic, and I love everything about it. Mm-hmm. 
Track number three is The Great Pretender, the classic Platters 50s doo-wop song, as recorded really nastily by Freddie Mercury. <laughs> but anyway, this is a version by Lester Bowie. Now, Lester Bowie was the trumpeter in the art ensemble of Chicago, and I first came across this track in, like, 1981 or something, when Dave Lee Travis played it on Radio 1, and he just thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. And he couldn't believe that someone could put this out, basically. I think he thought, oh, my God, this is the Great Pretender. And now what are they doing? And they're making these bizarre farting sounds. And now they're, it's just like someone's pushed the piano down the stairs. And, and then there's some kind of squirting going on or something. Right. And he was just, like, playing <laughs> right. it. And then every now and then he'd say, listen to this bit. And then he'd giggle hysterically on the top of it. <laughs> and I was thinking, well, surely this is music, isn't it? What's you idiot what's I the problem you, what's wrong with you anyway so, so this half is half good on him for playing it cause I mean yeah exactly radio was so I remember that for years I remember that for years and eventually you know got it got it as it were it was on ECM remarkably mm. and um, I just watched some of that Keith Jarrett documentary that's on um, iPlayer BBC iPlayer at the moment mm. which is lots of Keith and then lots of um, Manfred Eicher of ECM just you know raving about his 500 recordings of Keith Jarrett in concert with the beautiful <laughs> echo and reverb and tastefulness. And it's quite surprising, really, that this Lester Bowie anarchy is out on ECM. But anyway, it is just... I mean, it's, it's just about 15, 17 minutes long. Keep but it, it is worth it. And, you know, they play the tune and then there's this astonishing um, baritone sax solo from Hamiet Blewett before um, Lester Bowie himself churns it up. Oh. It's just Sounds exciting. the best thing, yeah. the best thing. And it's part of that thing, isn't it, where jazz and popular music, we all know that when bebop happened in the 40s, then jazz went one way and popular music went a different way entirely, mm. and then obviously rock and roll happened and the Beatles and pop music and rock music, and they never came back together, and Miles tried to play pop songs in the 80s still and so on and so on. Yeah. But this, Great Pretender, just just the best thing. And I, you know, there was a whole... Um, Controversy wasn't there in the 80s about jazz and Winton Marsalis saying this is what jazz is and this is what it is and this is how we must play it and Lester Bowie was at the forefront of saying don't be ridiculous.
let's keep going. Let's keep going. Yeah. At a tangent, at a Flying tangent, through. as it were. Yeah. I also played the accordion. Yes, I've, I've, I've played, played with you playing the accordion. Oh, that's true. Yes. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we haven't quite made it a feature, a regular feature yet. Maybe. Yeah. I, I need to get it out for the rhubarb festival, maybe, if I can work out what to play. Um, there was a point when I had to choose in Sheffield, and I was working with a little theatre company, and I, I had to choose either between getting an electric piano or getting an accordion to play for theatre shows, and I decided to buy an accordion. I thought it was more interesting. My dad played for Morris Dancing for a while on the accordion, oh, yeah. so I knew that the accordion was a possibility. Mm. But the last thing I wanted to do on the accordion was play anything that sounded like Morris Dancing music, or British or Irish music, basically. So I went off to Sheffield City Library again uh, to dig anything out with an accordion on that wasn't from the British Isles. And so I learned all sorts of Cajun tunes and and klezmer tunes, Jewish tunes, and Balkan tunes, and South African township jive kind of tunes, and then discovered tango as well. And so obviously what you find is that most of these accordions, they're not, you know, I was playing the piano accordion with a piano down the side, buttons on the left hand. And then you just go, there's so many different kinds of accordion with buttons on both hands and instruments that play different notes when you pull them out, when you squeeze them back in. Um, so tango, Argentinian tango was played on the bandoneon, mm -hmm. which is like a kind of big square box. And it is different notes pulling out, pushing in kind of a tragic instrument they say because it's so difficult to learn that you can only play tragic music on it so. yeah. okay. and I discovered Astor Piazzolla who was the godfather of Nuevo Tango newer jazz influenced tango from the 60s onwards and um, as lots of world music in the late 80s was having kind of a push and a revival or a bit of extra marketing so he had an album out called Tango Zero Hour oh, I can't remember what label that was on but it was this, I think this might have been track, no, I don't think it was track one, but Milonga de Angel. Mm -hmm. And there was a whole little suite, as I discovered in later years, there was a whole little suite of tunes dedicated to Angel, and there was Resurrection, and there was Death, and um, I was in a band for a while called Tango Siempre, mm -hmm. that toured up and down the country, and we obviously we wrote our own stuff, but we played a lot of Piazzolla, and in the, the classic years of that band, which were maybe the early 2000s, we played this tune a lot with a couple of yeah. dancers. Milonga del Angel, and it's just very slow and moody and romantic. And, and um, anyway, I recommend tango music to anybody, basically. It's beautiful, isn't it? Absolutely stunning. Never learned to dance. And, you know, dancers are basically devoted to the music of the 30s and the 40s, whereas what we wanted to do was play the Nuevo tango and write our own slightly jazzier tunes. Mm. We, did, we did an album with Gilad Atzman. Oh, yeah. Gilad Atzman and Steve Ogwellis um, on the drums and kind of drummy electronics. And um, it was an interesting project. Yeah. But there was a very nice album with that. You could discover. About well. this Piazzolla, yeah, yeah. He, I, I might have, you know, I can remember, I think Piazzolla came to Edinburgh in about 1990 or something. Well, obviously I was nowhere near Edinburgh. And then, then he had a, fell into a coma and that was the end of him. Mm. So you have to go and see people, don't you? That's the don't, thing. Don't like, miss out. You yeah. know. I went and saw Art Blakey, I went and saw Don Cherry, but other people that I might have seen, I didn't go and see. And, mm. you know, it's great now, occasionally you meet people, don't you? You meet older people and say, oh yeah, I saw Monk in 61 in Leeds, or Bernie who's, who comes to the club and provides the drum yeah. kit for us. He's always telling us about the people he saw 50 or 60 years ago, just astonishing people. Yeah, I remember talking yeah. to everybody in Newcastle about that, mm. saying the, the, mm. yeah, the 60s and the 70s, and just 
everybody came to Newcastle. Yeah. Everybody yeah. who is anybody in the jazz world now yeah. who you would consider yeah. the superstars. Yeah. They, they've all been, and it's, it's great. And there was a kind of mega cabaret club in Wakefield called the Wakefield Theatre Club where, yeah. like, Duke Ellington came, and <laughs> just astonishing. <laughs> just well. astonishing.
So for this little selection, yeah. this is my last one. So okay. um, it's an interesting thing. Even when I'm running workshops, I think to myself, well, it's no good if you're just going through, you know, kind of blue, going through modal jazz, going through playing standards. You've got to, you've got to be aware of what's going on, and jazz has got to keep moving forward. And already we're 20 years into the 21st century, and, and jazz gets harder to define as it goes on. But, you know, I think I have a kind of little, little what do you call it, a panoply of, of contemporary icons as well, of people who mm. are pushing it forward. You know, there's lots of people who are doing stuff that could have been done at any point in the last 40, 50, 60 years, and people who are still playing kind of hard bop, and it's, you know, it's still that kind of macho thing about playing it slightly faster and louder than, than anybody else, and then moving on to the next solo to see if they can do the same. So always, always I'm looking for more interesting things mm. and people who are still being creative and going off at an angle somewhere. So one of those people, one of, I mean, there's like a little, in my head there's a little list, there's like Henry Threadgill and there's Vijay Iyer, um, Taylor Hobynum, Marilyn Crispell, although she's got a bit mellow for me these days. Okay. Um, <laughs> and Mary Halverson. So Mary Halverson is an electric guitar player, American. Maybe she's 35 or something now. Mm-hmm. And there was a point over the last 10 or 15 years when I noticed that if her name turned up on a track, it, you knew it was going to be good. And she might be the best thing about it. And she's got a particular sound and a particular style. I went and saw her with a band called, I think they were called The 13th Assembly. Is that right? And it turned out it was a quartet and all of them had 13 letters in their name, which was quite okay. just a coincidence that they recognised. But she was, I really like, she was, there was just no unnecessary unnecessary faffing about with her she played the notes she sat there she was really serious and just played the notes and focused really clearly on the music and there was no like histrionics oh, it was just so focused and intense I really liked that this, is, this track that I've chosen it's um, from a solo album can't remember the name of the album but this track is in fact a track um, Oliver, Oliver Nelson track from his famous album The Blues and the Abstract Truth featuring Eric Dolphy which is, is an absolute classic album this is Cascades, which might well be a blues, but um, it is Cascades rippling on the electric guitar, yeah. and in quite a you know quite a heavy electric guitar sound for her, rather than a kind of dry indie rock sound. But yeah, Mary Halverson, I think she is just astonishing. Mm. Thank you, Pete. Well, that's five tracks. We could do another five tracks on another session sometime. We could sit for hours. And obviously, just go I could music, go on forever, or yeah. we could choose five tracks of people that have played in Wakefield <laughs> in the last three years. Let's instance. do it the other way around one day. Yeah. I'll, t- I'll choose mine. And yeah, exactly. That'd be quite fun to do. Then I might be mean. Uh, what do you mean you might be mean? I'll say no, that's not it. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed that. It's got to be better. That's not, that's not spiky enough. No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> that's yeah. not going to push yeah. anything forward, what yeah. you're choosing that for. <laughs> Cruel, isn't it? Yeah. Brilliant. Thank yeah. you so much, Pete. And good luck with everything for the future. Yes, indeed. And uh, we'll see you soon. All the audience out there, don't forget, Wakefield Jazz every Friday night. <laughs>